Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I hope you're warm and well-fed this week, because the alternative is not good. I'm joined by Ali Wilkes, the preeminent author of historical horror fiction. You may recall that I bloody loved Ali's first book, All the White Spaces, which we discussed in episode 76. Well, she's back with her second novel, Where the Dead Wait, which I may love even more. It ranks pretty high in my best of 2023 list, though it is only coming out in the UK today. Where the Dead Way is another novel of strange, indeterminate haunting in the frozen wastes of the world. This features not one, but two Arctic explorations that fall to ruin, with ghosts, human suffering aplenty, and finally, a choice bit of cannibalism. <laughs> we talk about all of that, of course, and you will find out what the experts say human flesh smells like when you cook it. That'll ruin parties for you forever. But we also discuss queerness in historical horror, we explore some mad theories about the polar regions, and we reminisce about the time that Ali nearly died in the Himalayas. Jolly good fun, what? If you like this kind of macabre stuff and want to support me in making it every week, consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, or use the link in the show notes, Sign up for a few quid and get the mother ton of bonus episodes awaiting you, including a couple of great extra chats with Ali talking about the mysteries of the polar regions. But now, regardless of that, come with me to a land of shifting ice and unsettled temperaments. Gather round the meagre fire and accept your rations. Let's talk scared. Hello, Ali, and a big wintry welcome back to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Neil. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm. What is it today? It's the 18th of December we're recording this, so I am limping towards Christmas at this point. <laughs> this is my last record that I'm doing for the year. Um, so by the time people hear this, I'll be, I'll be in a much fresher state of mind. But how are you oh, as, wow. the, as the year wanes? Are you invigorated, shattered? Pretty much the same. I think almost at base camp. I can see mm. it. <laughs> Right, so that's a very apt metaphor because, well, again, just like last week with Jenny Kiefer, we're talking adventure horror, you know, because the horror of 2024, this brand new year ahead of us, does seem somewhat hyper-focused on adventure, on on getting out there, being active, meeting awful fates in the outdoors. Um, and to that end, you're here with your second historical epic, Where the Dead Wait. So it's been out in the US for a few weeks now, and it's out today january 23rd i believe in the uk how, how are you feeling about everything um i'm feeling quite frankly startled it made it this far it was a bloody difficult book to write <laughs> and um there were points at which i genuinely thought about scrapping it all genuinely yeah not to go into too much detail here but i um wrote it three times and each time i was like what am i doing could i maybe write a different book instead oh right okay so did, I don't know, layers of each iteration end up in the final product or was it a, an entirely new book on the third pass through? It was almost unrecognisable on the third pass through. The things that remained very, very similar were the base underlying backstory. Um, okay. It was mostly the action in the present day of the book that underwent a massive sea change. 
All right. Well, you'll have to tell me about that off air because I don't want to spoil, you know, off too often on this show, I end up having the conversation about the book that could have been, but I am intrigued as to what, what would have been different. But before we get to variations, I suppose, tell us what the book actually is. Like, introduce where the dead weight to us in, in a way that people who haven't read it yet can understand this conversation. Sure. Well, Where the Dead Wait is a sort of polar adventure gothic. It's set in the 1800s. It's got two timelines, which will become clear as I explain them. Um, My protagonist is a man called William Day, and he comes back from a doomed expedition to the Arctic in the 1860s. Really a broken man because that um, expedition ended in disgrace. Lots of allegations flying around. He is vilified by the press and seen very much as a monster. Um, However, 13 years later, the Admiralty ask him to help look for a fallen comrade from the same expedition. So one of his old mates, who has also now gone missing in the Arctic again, bit of a theme with him. And so Day sets out to find his former colleague and in doing so has to dig up pretty much all the uncomfortable truths and ghosts and guilt that he's been denying about the first expedition, not helped in the slightest by the fact that on board he has a reporter who's a bit of an obsessive fanboy and the spirit medium wife of his lost colleague. Yeah, you pack them all in there. There's there's, there's a lot of people on board (laughs) in in this story. In some ways, it's got a slight, I don't know, I was going to say Agatha Christie vibe, but it's not that. There is there is a sort of loose tradition, I think, in in nautical stories where you take a ship and and make it a stage for all different kinds of characters. And I think you did that in your first book, All the White Spaces, but certainly in this book where there are a lot of competing personalities on board both journeys, right? Yes, that's right. I mean... I wrote the book with a cast list pinned up on my wall because it was the only way to do it. And then I found that I was making a cast list for two expeditions. And then I found I was making a cast list for several multiple expeditions with multiple ships. And I think it might have been about that stage that I thought, oh, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? The cast list don't appear in the start of the novel as they did with my previous novel um, because, frankly, they would take up too much space. <laughs> yeah, somehow, because right, I thought this, when it first starts, when you're flitting between the 1860s and the, and the late 1880s, and you're introducing these characters, often you're, you're just doing sort of like very light sketches of who they are and their names and their rank. And I was like, how am I going to be able to keep up with, with who's who here? Um, and somehow it's never a problem. I, and I don't know how you've done that. Is that an editing job? Um, I think one of the things I tend to do is if I've got, say, my protagonist or my antagonist, I'll do an entire edit with each of them in mind. But then I will literally go down to tertiary characters and look at every time they appear in the book, how they're introduced, what they're introduced in reference to, how they're described and so on, to try and give the reader enough landmarks on the journey that they so they can remember oh we last saw him here or this is where this character belongs in relation to the other so I I do try and make it um, a little bit handholdy for the reader when you Mm. get down to those very granular characters that might appear twice in the book but they're important yeah it's interesting to me because 
My two abortive efforts so far at a novel have both hit the wall of having too many characters and me being... Oh, there's no such of, thing, Neil. There's no, there's no such thing. I mean, you know, if Dan Simmons could make the terror work... Yeah, it would, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm not Dan Simmons and I, I kept reading my... I don't, want to use, I don't like to use the word books, but my manuscripts and thinking... Uh, perhaps I was, I was being a little bit too critical of the average reader probably it'd be fine but I was kind of thinking I don't know who these people are there's too many of them and you just managed to do it in a way that never feels like a problem even though like I say at the start I was really concerned that I wouldn't be able to keep up um but there's lots of sort of challenges and thorny things in this book that we'll, we'll get to and, and, and there's time for that but the first thing really I want to ask you is about you are you an outdoorsy person Ali do, do, do you hike and summit things no <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not. I'm I'm not particularly outdoorsy. I do like a you know a nice walk in the woods as as much as the next person. Um, my sole experience of actual hiking in inverted commas was about fifteen years ago, maybe longer than that, when I um, went on a very short hike through the Himalayas. Um, oh, oh, okay. I thought you were going to say like your one experience of hiking was like half an hour in the Yorkshire Dales, and you're like, no, no. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And that and that scarred me so much, <laughs> Neil, that I was like, well, I'm never going back. I hate it. Yeah, I mean, when you say the Himalayas, that's that's proper hiking. I think hiking may even be too small a word for the Himalayas. I don't know what you would call that, but that's that's quite a valid thing, and um, and that put you off forever, did it? Oh yeah, absolutely hated it. It was. Um... <laughs> It was a, a real monument to the hubris of the British tourist, put it that way. Okay. So when I when I write these books about very poorly planned expeditions going out into the arse end of nowhere and unsurprisingly coming a cropper, I kind of have real life experience with that because I ended up, you know, climbing through a blizzard in the Darwell Pass um, wearing jeans and a Packamac from Tesco. Oh, and being like, I might actually die up here. You know, this 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 might actually be the end. And what a bloody stupid way to go it would be as well. So F found in jeans and a cagoule on on a Himalaya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, essentially. Um, we didn't expect the weather to be so intense, and I don't think either did our guides. And there was one very very funny moment when me and my party were heading up into the hills above the lake. You know, just you know, just at the snow line. And there was a big group of people coming down towards us. And they, they were all very friendly. And they all shook our hands as, as they went past and wished us luck. And some of them took pictures of us. And that was the Indian, uh, Indian School of Mountaineering. We're, le <laughs> we're leaving the mountain because the conditions were not acceptable. Um, so so they, they were clearly thinking, you know, these guys are going to be tomorrow's news story. You know, we're going to we're going to tell them good luck, and we're going to take some pictures so we can show their families what happened. Yeah, were you, were you all British? Yes, we we did we did have local guides, um, which is probably the only thing we did smart. All the idiots were British, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, oh definitely, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we do, isn't it? We go to parts of the world and go, we used to own this, so we can climb it. Never mind the weather. Yeah. So, you, well, I mean, you're my second guest in only a few weeks to have been up the Himalayas and had weather problems. You know, you, Michelle Paver, your your companion in Adventure Horror, <laughs> did the same. Um, but but like her, you, you tend to write about the poles. And I am interested in, in why the poles specifically, because obviously you went south 
mm-hmm. in all the white spaces to a kind of cosmically haunted Antarctica. Uh, and now in your second book, you've gone north. Um, and, and this is not a sequel at all, we should be clear. But I think that you could argue it's sort of a spiritual companion to your debut. Yeah, I think I think that's very fair. Um, it's a spiritual companion in terms of some of the themes it explores, most notably guilt and grief. Um, but also it's a spiritual companion in that it frankly contains everything that I wanted to put in the first book, but couldn't due to time, space and coherence issues. Well, that was going to be my my question. Let's be honest that they are completely independent novels, but on paper, as an elevator pitch, you could kind of think, well, that's retreading similar ground, couldn't you? You know, mm. um, so I thought, well, there must be a reason you've done it. And, and was there a sense of something just unfinished at the end of that first book? Yes, I think so. I, I have very particular interests in terms of survival horror, um, one of which, of course, is cannibalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have interests in things like, you know, gruesome scurvy and things like that and polar bear attacks and all those sorts of things, which really you can't, well, you could shoehorn them into an Antarctic narrative apart from the polar bears, um, but I didn't try to. And I deliberately told myself, oh, I'll come back for these. And so I knew I knew where I was going to go in my second book, which was going to be to indulge myself in all the stuff I couldn't fit into my first book. But I was, as you say, very conscious of the risk of retreading the same ground. Um, one of the th- ways I thought about Where the Dead Wait for a really long time is that it was the story of um, perhaps Harry Cooper from the first book. So in All the White Spaces, the protagonist has a friend called Harry Cooper, who is endlessly haunted by guilt and what he did during the war and so on and so forth. And he goes on to make even stupider and even more deadly decisions down in Antarctica. And my thoughts for book two for the longest time is, what if he had to go back to Antarctica again? It um, It wasn't necessarily going to be Harry. It was just a way for me to tell myself what I was doing. I think sometimes I need to tell myself a narrative about a book that I can really easily understand. Like, I I think of it as, oh, it's like this other book, or oh, it's like this scene or that scene. Um, And just having that little snapshot in my mind really helps me work out what the through line of it is. And one of the things that I repeatedly praised to anyone who would listen about all the white spaces is how you interrogated like the myth of imperial heroism like the chauvinism of it and the this you know you know this ridiculous hyper masculine ideal that you just took apart in that first book mm-hmm. to, to what extent did that project carry over into this this second novel i think it carried over quite seamlessly really because In All the White Spaces, I was concerned with a protagonist who didn't necessarily fit standard conceptions of Mm -hmm. what a hero should be. Jonathan is a a trans man um, who is passing as a cis man. And one of the other characters in that book is a closeted gay man. And when we come to Where the Dead Wait, our protagonist is William Day, he has been wrestling all his life with very uncomfortable 
sexualized feelings about his lost shipmate. And I felt that that was the way in to think about tenderness and the idea of weakness and all these things that come out of survival narratives, those stories of human closeness. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, you, you get quite a lot of, of grist, don't you, from the different meanings of the word closeness, because it, it, it's made quite clear that there are many, many times in these environments where where men need to be physically close for survival. You know, they get into bed together and hug and, you know, and they, there's a, a physical proximity that's to do with survival, which can be indistinguishable from a, a different kind of intimacy. It's quite an interesting environment in which to look at ideas of male intimacy because all those lines blur quite a mm. lot. I think they blur, but also to a certain extent, I think that they are that the fact that the boundary is there is what allows that intimacy and that closeness. So I think that it's only with the sort of repressed, no one is gay, that's disgusting, all that sort of internalised um, hatred and all that homophobia. I think it's only with that in place that maybe people in these historical contexts or certainly men in these historical contexts were able to show tenderness and closeness mm. and, you know, get into bed together to warm each other up, etc. Because that boundary was very much in place, because that line was the unthinkable thing which we do not cross. And so I had great fun in thinking about all the ways in which it could be crossed. Yeah. And one of the things I love about both of these stories and I will, in a minute, stop talking about them as kind of one thing because they're not. That's fine. But I, I really like the way that you start with these rigid strictures of, you know, like you just said, the homophobia and that there are boundaries that must not be crossed. And then when the shit hits the fan and when it all starts going wrong, you realise that these things and the characters realise that these things just don't matter because, for example, you know, Day, your captain, is so uptight about his own inability to come to terms with his own sexuality. Yet later, when one of the, one of the mates loses a man who is strongly implied to be his lover in a crevasse, um, there's an awful lot of empathy there. And, and, and it's that the idea that under duress, those things fall away and become less important. And there's, there's a weird hopefulness in that, <laughs> as, as awful as the, the actual events are. Yeah, I think that's... I think that's very true. And that is something that I wanted to do, because at the core of a lot of polar literature, certainly dealing with Antarctica, is the idea that when you strip away all the trappings of civilization and all the sort of half truths and the bluster, etc., you get to the core of what's really important and you get the core of who someone is. That's something I've always got a lot of mileage out of in writing, the idea that when the chips are down, you reveal your true self. And for better or worse, is it a good true self or is it a bad true self? Mm. Yeah. You just said something then that's sort of piqued my interest. You just said, particularly in Antarctica, I hadn't thought about this until right now, is there a difference when you're sitting down to write a polar adventure story between writing about the South Pole and the North Pole? Well, I'd say that, first of all, there's the very obvious difference that um, Antarctica was uninhabited. I mean, now, obviously, there are people who live out there, but um, it has no indigenous population. Mm. So it is literally a blank slate. So 
the sort of stories that I like to tell in terms of imperialism and colonialism have a different sort of resonance down there because it is land that is, you know, tabula rasa, it belongs to no one. Um, Whereas, of course, in the Arctic, you have the huge history of displacement and looting and general destruction of the habitats of the First Nations peoples. So that's the most obvious, I would say, difference in terms of how you how you think about it. But I would also say that there's a slight difference in register is noticeable when you look at the Antarctic and Arctic literature. The Antarctic literature, for whatever reason, tends to be a little bit more gung-ho, thigh-slapping, good old boys, Scott, (laughs) Shackleton, Cherry Garrard, all those, you know, just the fact there's someone there called Cherry Garrard. I mean, what great, great name, great name, great dude. Um, It seems to me, and this may be a personal response to the subject matter, it seems to me that it's got a lot more um, of that sort of boarding school camaraderie to it. Whereas the literature that comes out of the Arctic in terms of journals and survival stories and so on seems to me to be more unrelentingly in your face and grim. Right. Because the Antarctica, yeah, it's a frozen wasteland, but it is a landmass, whereas so much of the Arctic is shifting, cracking, and and it's changing and it's actually Mm. attacking you because a lot of what you write about are these ships that are, trapped in the ice and then they're being squozen by the, the the ice and it it feels like a much more actively hostile place to be yeah that could be part of it or just off the top of my head it could be in terms of time periods and in inverted commas national temperaments because a mm. lot of the um antarctic stuff i read um necessarily in english is british um stuff from you know, the early 1900s, which was really a bit of a rah-rah time, as Mm. we all know. And the Arctic stuff tends to occupy a slightly different era. It tends to be more 1800s. It tends to be more concerned with, not more concerned with scientific discovery, because of course, Antarctica was all about scientific discovery as well. But scientific discovery seems to be more at the forefront of everyone's minds. And there seems to be more sort of rationalism and engaging with stuff as they find it well one of the big things that underpins the expeditions at least the first expedition so just to refresh for listeners in case they've forgotten the last 15 minutes we've got a narrative in the 1860s in which day and his shipmate stevens who we'll get to are heading north and then in the 1880s day has gone back to, to find another crew crew led by stevens who are lost in the ice so that's the two narratives we've got but in the first of those narratives, there's a lot of um, this stuff about the open polar sea, which is not something I particularly knew about. It. So this is a genuine theory, mm. right, that there was a, a whole sea up there above the ice that was that was temperate. Yeah, it was a particular idée fixe of the 1850s and 1860s. Um, the science behind it, such as it was, was... First of all, an observation that in places like the North Water, which is at the top of Baffin Bay, there are polynias, which are sort of open areas of ice-free, warmer water because of the currents. Secondly, the fact that birds can be seen sometimes going north for the winter, as can 
various sea creatures. Thirdly, the the quite bizarre idea that um, ice can only form near land. I never heard that. Yes, no, that they were really certain of that. And all of those things came together to sort of posit this idea that at the top of the world, there was an annulus or a ring of ice. But once you penetrated it, you would get into this sort of balmy tropical sea that you could just sail through. And so you could sail over the top of the world and it would cut down on all sort of like shipping routes and stuff. And it'd be marvellous. Of course, that's all completely untrue. And the sort of coffin nail in that theory came in the 1880s. But I was just really fascinated by the idea that it was thought of as this sort of utopia for a while. It's this very um, science fiction type idea that there's this tropical sea and waterfalls and tribes living up there that have been uncontacted and so on and so forth. It was... um, just, just a mad theory that bears no relation to reality, but but very credible people were utterly convinced it was true. Well, I, I'm going to get into the weeds here because this is the kind of stuff that just really floats my boat, no pun intended. But I've only ever read about this stuff in relation to the really, really pseudo-scientific ideas of like hollow earths uh, and, you know. Sims holes, yeah. Yeah. and Sims um, holes are such a part of that as well. It's it's all It all sort of boils together after a while. Mm. And because there's a thing in, in Antarctica as well, you'll have heard of this, about, you know, Admiral Richard Byrd, who, yeah. you know, he, for listeners, Admiral Byrd was a very, very decorated and well-respected pilot in the US Navy. Um who who was that? There was a, a U.S. Navy installation put in Antarctica. Was it Operation High Jump? Is that the? I think that's the one. It was High Jump. Was in the sort of post Second World War phase. Of course, conspiracy theorists think mm. that it was the Americans trying to root out all those secret Nazi bases in Antarctica. Of course. Yeah, and of course they thought the Nazis had found the ways to Hollow Earth. But like Admiral yeah. Byrd, who is this incredibly decorated officer, f- supposedly flew across. Um, this open hole flew into this open hole and was met by t- these idyllic aliens. And, and there's, he has a diary, in the, but that's all been brought mm. into dispute now, and it's been seen as a bit of a hoax and all uh, of that sort I of mean, stuff. But, I mean, I've, I've I've read the diary, Neil. It's frothingly insane. <laughs> I've never read it. I've I've only ever watched really poorly edited YouTube videos about it. No, I I read that diary for where the dead wait to sort of really immerse myself in this sort of idea and it's just insane okay the interesting thematic anchor of all that stuff about the open polar sea is the idea that it would provide a place for almost as you say tribes that have been unaffected um sort of rousseau's idea of natural man you know that underpinned frankenstein even another another link to polar exploration walton gone up in frankenstein Mm -hmm. this idea of the natural man of a man untouched by social stigma um who would the implication is be not homophobic and will be able to accept day and stevens for, for what they are it's a it's a sort there's a, there's, a, there's a slight sadness to all the frothing insanity isn't there in that regard oh definitely and also in the novel whilst various characters have their ideas about how the men up there might be and you know what this idealized race of man might be there's quite a lot of sadness to the fact that you know from colonial history and also from very real history recounted in the book that almost the first thing that 
white settlers would do, of course, is subjugate that race. So it's a sort of it's a melancholy idea, certainly. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've packed a lot here into the first 20 minutes and I've yet, yet to ask you about goats. So here's a mad question that at the surface sounds like nonsense because the genres couldn't be more different. But is this book inspired in any way by the movie Event Horizon? <laughs> um, I think, yes, probably. Probably that, yeah, I think Event Horizon probably inspired all the white spaces as well. Right. They are very, very similar ideas of humans going out to the far reaches of wherever and um, fucking with whatever they encounter out there uh, and then bringing something hideous back with them. Uh-huh. Just to explain, not to overcomplicate things, listeners, but the first boat that Day is on in the 1860s is called The Reckoning. And then he goes back to try and find his friends in, in, a, in a boat called The Resolution. But they find the reckoning and my immediate thought was it's like the event horizon it's like she's come back from somewhere and she's brought something hideous with her that's kind of almost in her and of her and animates her and it is a haunted house novel in that regard it's just a a house that floats right yes exactly i mean you've hit the nail exactly on the head with the event horizon and the reckoning because Hmm. she has there's something has become very uncanny about her There are all these things about her which don't quite fit with Day's recollection Mm. uh, or do fit too well with Day's recollection. And when I was writing the scenes in which they first encounter the reckoning, I was thinking about Event Horizon, but I was also thinking um, very much of the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. Yeah. And that idea of a place as possessed by the malevolence of memory. Mm. That's a nice phrase. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, this comes up all the time for me, how much the modern haunted house is a, is a lineage with, and, and almost none of them, almost none of the memorable ones are traditional in the sense that they are at just a place where there is a singular ghost walking around with a purpose. You've got Hill House, you've got The Overlook, um, coming through all the way to something like Event Horizon. You know, they're, they're not mm. just simple ghost stories. They are an amalgamation of of spiritual haunting, of haunting by trauma, by memory, and you know, architecture itself being malign. Um, it's been quite a while actually since I think we've had a ghost story that is just oh, that is a singular ghost who is basically just a version of themselves, but on the other side of the veil. It's much more complicated than that these days. And this book itself, you know, when Day talks about being haunted. Um, he says he's haunted by something far less straightforward than a ghost. That's a direct quote from the book. Um, and haunting in, in Where the Dead Wait means a lot of things, doesn't it? Yes, it's as you say, it's to do with haunting of memory, haunting of guilt, and also sort of a psychological haunting. Mm. For a long time, I played with the idea that there was nothing supernatural at work at all. Um, in Where the Dead Wait, but um, I think I've come down on the side of there is. Well, I wondered though because Day is going north in the in the the in the present tense, you know, in in the, the the later narrative, he's going north to try and find Stevens, but we don't know whether Stevens is dead or alive, and I'm and I'm not going to spoil it. Um, but 
it turns out he's been haunted by this kind of apparition of Stevens for mm. years, at times when we know that he is very much alive. That's just an intriguing thing, thing to me because that is, what's he really haunted by there? Is he haunted by his love for Stevens? Is his rejection of Stevens? Is he haunted by what him and Stevens have done together? Which is the great pleasure of the book, finding out what really went down that first time around in the Arctic. That's that's the really horrible, delightful, grim pleasure of the novel. But I think the way you play with that, I, it, it, it could be the entire thing is just the delusions of a man who can't come mm. to terms with himself and what he's done. Yes, and I thought about that quite a lot and how explicit I wanted to make it that there was something supernatural going on. Um, and I think up to a certain point, you could really read it either way. In terms of what Day is haunted by, um, you know, this apparition of Stevens that's mm. walking and eventually talking and coming closer and ever closer, I think it's what Day did with Stevens out on the ice. Mm. It's the visual representation of that. And as the book goes on, that idea takes on different forms. So when he first sees the apparition, in the context of the book, um, Stevens is sort of in the background of paintings um, and sort of quite ghostly and sort of hovering and, you know, sort of not really very tangible. But as he heads into the Arctic and as he starts having to grapple with all the, the things that he has done and all the sort of lies he's told, it starts coming closer, it starts having weight, it starts having tangibility, and it starts taking on, as it seems, a life independent of him, uh, an ability to interact with the world. So, so I very much saw it as that's the visual representation of his past, mm. and he's interacting with it, but later on other people will have to interact with it too. And there's another whole side plot, side mission narrative thing to do with these whalers who are crewing um, Day's second attempt at the Arctic. And they've had their own trauma in the past where they all ended up on in, in kind of lifeboats floating around in the frozen water for ages. And And you hint at things that have gone on where they've, sort of given rise to a cult a, a cult of you know whale gods or something odd has gone on these boats and you never really piece the pieces together completely but they're just as haunted by their experiences as day is by his his own experiences it's again coming back to the overlook it's like this second expedition is a an arena for people to be haunted by whatever's happened in the, their own pasts is am i reading that right Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, the whalers, I'm glad you say you never quite piece it together because I didn't intend people mm. to be able to piece it together perfectly. But you do get hints and images and flashes of what went on in the whaling expedition. I wanted sort of to think about all the different ways people can react to these very extreme survival situations. And because the main narrative with Day and Stevens is quite bleak and does showcase some of the worst decisions people can make. I did like the idea of having a sort of a set off, a juxtaposition, a different version of the same story playing out sort of in the shadows 
um, something for Day to compare himself to and acting counterpoint to. But as you'll probably guess, Neil, it was mostly about having someone stalking the ship with a whale skull mask on killing people. Yeah, th- this would make the greatest historical slashing movie of all time if you wanted to make it, because it is a guy who's made a mask out of a killer whale and is trolling around. I mean, it it's quite a striking image. But I mean, that, I, that, that stuff about the whaling boats, this story we don't even really hear, that itself sounds like such a horrific, compelling tale. I mean, did that ever almost threaten to become the story? No, thankfully. I think <laughs> if it if it had, I would have had to take it out back and beat it with a big stick until it was dead. Like, no more. This book is already very long. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to know what's going on in those boats. In a weird way, this is a really strange comparison. When I was reading the, 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 the brief details about how these people in the water have just turned feral, essentially, made me think of the USS Indianapolis. You know when all the people went into the into the water and the sharks were picking them off one by one. And mm-hmm. if you have you ever read about what happened in that in those few days, how insane the survivors went on the various rafts and what went on? It's horrendous. It, it absolutely is. I've read a lot of raft narratives, for want of a better word, to think about the whalers mm. and the extent to which you go the extent to which drinking seawater and dehydration will cause you to hallucinate wildly can't be overestimated. And yeah, you get these absolutely terrifying narratives. There was one book I read, um, which had been re-released with a really prosaic title, Man on a Raft. And I was really disappointed by that title because the original title, Neil, was What Cares the Sea? Yeah, and okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What cares the sea? The answer is, the sea cares not. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast, I can't remember what it was, about the Indianapolis. And this is, the, for those who don't know, this is the boat that Quint has been on in Jaws when he tells the story about, you know, three days in the ocean, the sharks. And the theory is that they made a ring and people would spend some time on the outside of the ring and they'd be eaten by sharks. And if you survive, you went on the inside of the ring and you were a bit safer. And I thought it was a story of like heroism and camaraderie. And then no. <laughs> when I listened to it, there was like people on rafts and it's like, as I understand it, within within like 72 hours, they were turning to murder and cannibalism and, and, and rape. And it just went mm-hmm. nuts. Like before yeah. even they were starving, just it, like you say, seawater and deprivation, it just went crazy right away. It's a horrific story. Yeah, it's the same thing as with the raft of the Medusa. I think um, a podcast that's, near and dear to both of our hearts, Mm. Casting Lots. I know we've both appeared on that podcast, which is all about survival cannibalism. Um, They ran a very successful litmus test throughout their seasons as to when is the appropriate point to engage in survival cannibalism. And the answer is certainly not 72 hours. But a lot of these things do seem to go to shit within the first 72 hours. And that's just, that. that's sort of the counterpoint, I suppose, to what I was saying about these extreme situations revealing who you really are Mm. because it can reveal who you really are and you could be the sort of hero that would give Shackleton his last biscuit or you could be the sort of person who's like, well, everything's broken down. I'm going to let the id come out. And Where the Dead Weight certainly has 
a large proportion, I would say, or perhaps several very significant people whose reaction to that sort of situation is, ah, it's time to do what I've always wanted. Mm. Well, speaking of what do what you've always wanted, I get the impression that you have always wanted <laughs> to write a cannibal book. Absolutely. I thought of ways to sort of put the spectre of it into all the white spaces. Mm. And in the end, it just didn't fit. It didn't fit very well for the location or the themes of the book. So I sort of put a pin in it and I was like, I'm going to write a cannibal book sometime. It's going to be the next one, actually. Done. I mean, it's not a spoiler. We find out in the literally the first <laughs> chapter that they've turned to cannibalism in the 60s, in the 1860s to survive. That's what. That's why Day has been kind of shunned by society. Um, and he's... That's one of the reasons he's going back is to save him. It's not not only save Stevens, but to save his own tatter reputation. Um, but yeah, you make it quite clear it's happened. But then the mystery really is about, you know, the ethics by which it has happened, right? Mm, yes. The idea of can- survival cannibalism as having certain codes of conduct and mm. ethics has always really fascinated me because you've got almost the sort of tacit acceptance in some seafaring narratives that it will and does happen. It's called the custom of the sea. But there seem to be sort of ground rules that have to be followed. So first of all, you eat the people that are already died. That's a given. Um, You eat the dead bodies before you start um, killing to eat. And if you are going to kill to eat, you have to give everyone a fair chance. That's where casting lots comes from. Mm -hmm. The person who draws the short story is going to be eaten. And I guess I can trace this back to when I was (laughs) very much younger and a law student. We did criminal law in my first term at university. And one of the things we had to learn about was the case of Dudley and Stevens, which um, is a famous test case for survival cannibalism in the maritime context and introduces the idea that necessity is no defence to murder. There's no defence of, I was going to die, therefore I had to kill this person. That just doesn't exist in English law. But I do remember looking at it and being fascinated by it and turning in this masterwork of, I don't know, 20, 30 pages. I stayed up all right all night writing it, sorry, sort of fueled by Red Bull and <laughs> as we all were in those days. Yeah. And I just remember my tutor giving it back to me with a note saying, uh, technically sound, but I didn't ask for this. <laughs> Going to say, was that the point where you perhaps should have thought, maybe I'll be a novelist and not a lawyer? <laughs> it, it should probably have given me clues. And it was very interesting that when I was thinking up names for characters in Where the Dead Wait, instantly what popped into my head when I was just I've got to name the protagonist and his antagonist um came Day and Stevens which is obviously so close to Dudley and Stevens so it was clearly just lodged there in the back of my skull waiting to get out well I'm glad you brought up them as a pairing because hmm so much of this book is quite hard to pin down, right? So it's quite hard to ask questions that are concise. And it's not my strong suit anyway, concision. But you, as, as the story goes along, you imply with increasing emphasis that Day and Stevens represent sort of two halves of a fractured person. Is, is that fair? Yes, that is absolutely fair. And and there's one line um, in particular when Day come At a moment when Day believes that Stevens may be truly dead. He has this thing where he says, the, the quote is, the thought that he and Stevens might part ways gave him a kind of hope, 
what might it be like to be someone whole? And the idea that you can only be whole if Stevens is no more, because otherwise Stevens will always be part of him. And and that got me thinking about all kinds of gothic reference. So obviously Jekyll and Hyde, you know, mm-hmm. Frankenstein and his monster. Um, yep. A bit more niche, like James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Um, and a really obscure one that, well, maybe obscure, but nautically appropriate is is Joseph Conrad's The Secret Sharer, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. story if people haven't read it. Um do you want to talk about how that theme of doubling and severing works in the book? Because it seems important, but subtle and hidden. <laughs> it's probably, Neil, so subtle and hidden that now I can't remember what I did. <laughs> um, but you're very right to point out Frankenstein as one of the touch points. Um, that idea of a maker or a creator pursuing his creation through the Arctic that kicks off Frankenstein and ends Frankenstein was something I thought about a lot. The idea of Day and Stevens as creator and created, but which way round it was. Mm. Um, because there's there's certainly an argument, well, as it were, the, the, the most obvious interpretation is that um, Day is Stevens' creation because Stevens um, was older than Day, it was a lot more experienced than Day, told him what to do, helped him out, sort of was a trusted confidant. So to that extent, you could look at the moral failings of Day and go, oh, well, he was created by Stevens. That explains it. But beyond that, and as the book went on, I started thinking about to what extent was Stevens a necessary creation of Day's, that he, the living embodiment of imposter syndrome or failing upwards, um, (laughs) ended up in a position in which he desperately needed someone to make the hard choices and someone to tell him what to do and someone to sort of, to almost be the monster. Mm. And in doing so, he gave Stevens permission to be the monster. So to that extent, Stevens is a creation of day. So it sort of like flips backwards and forwards between those two things. But that, that was very much the Frankenstein idea because it's very much one of my favourite novels. And of course, it gives... Um, the front quote to the book, um, I desire the company of a man who could sympathise with me, whose eyes would reply to mine, yeah. um, which is basically Day and Stevens in a nutshell. Both of them are looking for their other half, in inverted commas. They're looking for the person who will understand them and will accept them for who they are. But, um, oh, they're looking in the wrong places. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because... Stevens is just a phenomenal character. He's like, you know, he's he's your Colonel Kurtz, like waiting in your frozen heart of darkness. He right? absolutely is. Um, but he's also got a, a shade of Heathcliff about him in the fact that he comes out of nowhere. He's darkly complexioned in a way that doesn't quite make sense. No one knows his story. He's got this golden hair. He's, he's cruel and dispassionate and volatile and, and maliciously charming. And he, I kept thinking of Heathcliff all the way mm. through. One of my favourite characters because of the fact that he's so hard to pin down. But you, you say, you know, he's a creation of days and I get that. But what about your creation of, of Stevens? Because he's such a singular character and you make him such a sort of present void at the heart of the story. Yes. Um, I found Stevens really, really fun to write. Um, I hadn't really got to write someone who was that much of a, as you say, a moral void before. Mm. 
so he was he was difficult to write to the extent that I didn't want him to turn into a cartoon villain at any point, you know, no rubbing of hands or going more ha ha ha, etc. But on the other hand, I wanted to make it absolutely clear that I wasn't going to explain why Stevens is the way he is. I wasn't going to give him a sympathetic or a non-sympathetic backstory. He was just going to walk onto the page and affect day immediately. And everything I would do with Stevens would be through the lens of how Day perceives him and how he works on Day. Because you do hear a little bit about Stevens' backstory in the book. There's a story about men going up into the railway routes and getting stuck in a cabin over winter and only some of them make it out alive. And to a certain extent, that story could be absolutely true or it could be total bullshit. Um, What matters is what Day thinks of it and whether Day thinks Stevens is the person who was driven to cannibalism and that explains why he is the way he is or whether Day thinks Stevens is the person who started the cannibalism and that's why he is the way he is. It it doesn't really matter which of the versions is true but it gives you a, a lens through which you can see the character. Yeah completely because we the very things that Day loves about Stevens or that he professes to love are the very things that we see as as most monstrous from heart you know with our our heightened view of all this all the things that that Stevens is capable of day twists into a positive thing you know he's we see him as callous day sees him as practical and things like that Mm. um so really what he serves to do is is refine our view of day but gotta be honest and this is perhaps a worrying thing to say there were times quite a few times where I was actually on Stevens' side because at least Stevens does something, whereas Day is just kind of wants his, this is an awful pun, but wants his cake and eat it. He wants to be a good man, but also wants to survive. And those two things are not always compatible. Exactly. When I said that Day is walking imposter syndrome, Mm. I absolutely mean it. He's someone who is a very, very junior officer, has no real experience of command, shouldn't probably be in this position on this expedition, this nineteen, this 1860s expedition, but is. And through various people dying, he winds up in charge. He is vastly, vastly out of his depth. He's never learnt to be a commander in good times. And here he is trying to lead them through the worst times imaginable. And so you're right in that he does have this sort of paralysis or learned helplessness about him at times in which he really does just desperately want someone to make the hard choices for him and unfortunately the person who does that for him is Stevens Mm. um there's you know a very different version of the story and one that day regrets never happened in which it was a much more benign character that stepped in to be his right hand man and Everything would have turned out very differently if that was the case, but no, it was it was Stevens. Ah, oh, poor Shepherd. Those who <laughs> read the book will will meet poor Shepherd, and those scenes with well, there are scenes with a character called Shepherd where he is convicted of things, and there is a certain outcome to that conviction. They are the most terrifying parts of the book to me because you really nail down how desperate men will not only believe anything, but will look for facts that allow them to do the things they want to do, but no, they shouldn't do. Yeah, 
absolutely. In those sort of circumstances, they need a scapegoat. Mm. Um, and Shepherd, unfortunately, despite being very, very well liked, perhaps because he's so well liked and because he's so pleasant, he presents himself as the ideal whipping boy. And that's in part because of the circumstances in which he finds himself, but also, of course, in part because Stevens is such a shit. <laughs> yeah, but he is a compelling shit. I, I'll put it this way. If I was lost in the ice, I'd want to be with Stevens, not Day. Oh, mate. Although, no, I'd want to be with, I'd, I'd, I'd want to be with Stevens if there was me and 12 other people who were slower than me. I was going to say you'd want um, 12 people who were slower, sicker, uh, looked like a better meal than you. Yeah, yeah, carried carried a good bit of weight, yeah, because I'm not going to lie to you. I think I'd be one of the people who was tucking in within 72 hours. I never get why people wait until they're really starving. It's like if you're going to do it anyway, at least do it when it's some use to you. That's very true. And I, I did have a lot of fun with one scene in the book thinking about okay, so we've got this dead body, what are we going to do with it? Mm. And the obvious answer is eat it. But there's there's sort of an order in which you have to eat things from a human body in order to make the most of them. And there are a lot of books that have very, very gruesome rundowns of what you would do and when. I'm thinking particularly of Ice Blink by Scott Cookman. So, you know, the, the brain is going to spoil very, very quickly so you need to eat that quite early on. But that's difficult because most people don't want to eat human brain early on. They want to eat bits of the thigh or the buttock because mm. those aren't so immediately recognisable as human. But you, you've got to get that brain because it's full of nutrients. And particularly if the person's been starving before death, some of the best nutrition will be in the brain and the marrow. But no one wants to be cracking bones initially. That's the thing. And so there's this all all this lovely gruesome detail about the best way to go about it and those were very very fun scenes to write for me i can tell i can tell i've never heard anyone talk about the nutritional value of the brain with quite such relish before i mean good good to know the, the last thing i'll say about the cannibalism possibly the most horrifying tiny detail of the book blinking you could miss it but well, right. A lot of survival cannibalism, I think, is rationalized away, or at least it's dependent on the idea that once the body is dead, it's literally just meat. It's a resource that the spirit and the essence of that person has gone and you're not harming the, the person. But you take ghosts and you complicate that, don't you? I do. So the book has got two more or less competing models of ghostliness in it you've mm. got the spirit medium aspect where it's quite true to spiritualist beliefs of the 1880s which is the idea that there is no such thing as death it's merely a different plane of existence people have gone on to a different plane of existence they are continuing to evolve they are becoming purer more spiritual etc and they're basically operating on a different level from us and and so whatever's left behind is just the body because the spirit is so far gone. And that, I think, is in many ways quite a comforting idea, and it would be a very comforting idea if you were surrounded by dead bodies and having to make the choice to eat them. But the, the flip side of that, and 
something I wanted to do from a horror perspective is this idea of sort of the fleshy corpse, the the gruesomeness of the animate cadaver, the sort of ghoulishness, the idea that maybe there's a part of the spirit that gets trapped in the body. Mm. And so maybe it is capable of clawing its way up out of a grave, is capable of feeling what's done to it after death and is capable of living on even when it's sort of disarticulated down to pieces. And I find that idea incredibly upsetting as a counterpoint to the spiritualist one. Well, I find it very upsetting indeed, but also when that those disarticulated pieces are then consumed, there's this maddeningly awful idea that you essentially have a piece of a person's awareness in your gut that you are literally being haunted from within and you have these images of fingers crawling up day's throat from within trying to get out and i think it's just like i say it's a minor detail of the book but it's some of the most horrific imagery and the most awful implications oh thank you yeah oh yeah there's a line like you're right the flesh left behind wasn't just flesh it still meant something and when you've eaten that, then shit, you know, ugh, yeah, awful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I changed the title of the book quite late in the process. Um, the book was originally called, as a nod to both the open policy and to cannibalism, What Passes Through. Um, nice. Which might have maybe been a little bit too scatological for my big cannibal <laughs> book. But um, yeah, what... What passes through was something I always thought about, the idea of there being a person present inside the bits that you'd eaten. Oh, God. But it, it, I, I'm not a squeamish person, but that, that is, there's something awful about that. I don't know. Maybe it's my possession thing that I don't like. It might be your possession thing. And, and you know, Neil, I'm looking at this with this sort of like polishing the halo of the vegan because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't eat anything that's alive. That's fine. Yeah, and I've gone newly vegetarian as well, so... This all the scenes about eating meat and stuff were, were were newly repugnant to me in a way they may not have been a while back. Yeah. Well, um, that's the thing. I, I I did try to mine some of my own disgust at the smell because I really don't like the smell of cooking meat, and it comes up obviously a lot in Where the Dead Wait. The yeah, it does. best detail I got given when I was writing it was from one of my mates who's a beta reader for me and she's also a doctor. And so she's been present in surgeries where human flesh flesh has been cauterized. And so she was able to really accurately describe the smell to me. And do you know what it's apparently like? I'm sure I'm going to find out. Go on. Yeah. Well, well, you are going to find out, Neil. You're welcome. Um, If you open a can of barbecue Pringles and take a huff. (laughs) Oh, God. Right. That right. apparently is the closest you can get to the smell of cooking human meat. So enjoy that. You're welcome, listeners. You're welcome. You know that now. Enjoy your next Saturday night in with a tin of Pringles. The, the number of tins of Pringles I had to buy while I was writing this book, you know, just, just for research, in inverted commas, <laughs> just for research. Oh, well, I mean, from that awful detail to something that's a little bit more sublime and highfalutin, um, the, the last thing I want to ask you about, again, it's a difficult thing to articulate. I mean, I can't put it down to myself, let alone in words for you and the listener. But when I was reading this book, it took me a, quite a while to read it. I read at pace and I didn't read this fast at all because it's dense and it's a kind of dizzying experience because there are so many strands, so many inferences and implications and these gradually revealed connections that 
there were actually lots of points where I just didn't feel like I was keeping up or that I had a solid grasp of the story. And then just as I'm thinking, I'm flicking back, thinking, how have I missed this? And then later on, I realize, oh, no, 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 I never had that information. And you're parceling it out as we go along. And it's it's a bewildering book at times. And it, again, to my third reference to Conrad, you know, we, I mentioned The Secret Sherry, we mentioned Heart of Darkness. It does feel like Conrad's blend of sort of, I don't know, early modernist psychology and genre fiction. Um, there's just, you know what I'm getting at, these weird layerings. And what's your secret? Is that why the book was so hard to write? Oh, God. Um, well, as I alluded to, there are many times in which I was ready to throw the entire book in the bin. Um, I rewrote it about three times. And each time, <clears throat> the task for me was making sure that the reader had the information they needed, not necessarily on the same page, but certainly within the same few pages. Um, so that the picture could be built up in their mind. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of, um, I'd love to say spreadsheets, but actually I don't really know how to use spreadsheets. What I do is I get index cards or post-it notes and I lay out the entire thing on the floor of my living room, which is also my office. And I walk around it, I draw lines between things. I sort of have cut different colors for the different strands of the plot. And I do try to make it so that the reader will get the answers they need, but not necessarily immediately. Mm. So there's that sense of being kept hanging a little. One of the nicest things that I was told about the book came from my agent who read an early draft and then he read a more polished draft. And he said, look, I kept on writing in the margins. I don't understand this or you need to make this a little bit clearer. And then, then he said, I kept on going back and crossing that out. Because within the next couple of pages, I realized exactly what you meant. And so that's what I was trying to do to create a mystery that revealed itself as it went along. Writing the two timelines was, was very, very difficult and learning where they should interlace was very, very difficult as well. Um, and for that, I looked at a lot of books that had unconventional narrative structures and unconventional timelines I think when I was redrafting this book I read everything Katrina Ward has ever written <laughs> and in particular Sundial which I think is an absolute masterpiece of a book looking at how she parcels out information between two separate timelines maybe even three separate timelines and in Sundar, a fictional boarding school story as well. It's just it's just mad, all these different clues coming together to make a whole. And I wanted to sort of recreate that feeling for the reader. Right. I mean, I haven't read Sundar, so I can't make the comparison, but I completely get the Katrina Ward vibe. I mean, I have you read Looking Glass Sound? I have. Uh, yes, I read Looking Glass Sound over this summer just gone. And as I was reading it, I thought, oh, this is very Where the Dead Wait. Mm. I was really pleased. I was like, this is also grappling with stories and how they're told and how they change in the telling and how someone's memory might not actually be accurate, but it could still be true. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I, I hadn't made the connection to Cat Ward until you said it, but yes, I completely get that vibe all the way through. Again, it's that parceling out of detail just when you're ready. Um, all I'm saying is, listeners, be warned how dense it is and that it's a book to be really savoured and, 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 I don't know, 
navigated through yeah. rather than read as a as a beach read. I I just loved it, and I it was a nice challenge. It was nice to have to slow down for a change when reading the book. Thanks, Neil. That brings me to my closing question, and and you read so much that this is probably quite <laughs> cruel. Um, but can you recommend a book that my listeners should read? Because guests have been getting a bit greedy with this recently. I want one book that's at the top of your list. For listeners to read, I would say they all need to be looking out for Ghost Station by S.A. Barnes, which is going to be out in April 2024. Um, so S.A. Barnes's first novel, Dead Silence, was a sort of amazing haunted house hotel except it's a massive cruise ship abandoned in space very event horizon and ghost station um i wouldn't exactly say it's more of the same but it really it treads that sort of space horror adventure horror survival horror territory in that it deals with people going to an abandoned research station on a distant planet and there are these um mountains in the distance and if you've ever read uh, Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness, you will be initially incredibly suspicious of these mountains. And all I can say is absolutely rightfully so. Oh, wicked. That sounds great. I S.A. Barnes came on the show to talk about Dead Silence. I think it was episode mm. 77. Um, oh, so good. <laughs> it is great. Yeah. And, and that, that first book of hers was all about how sound has a haunting presence. And as somebody with... yeah. Someone with tinnitus like me, it was a bit of an unnerving read. But that this new one sounds fantastic. I, I love anything to do with like horror on a different planet because you're just... I mean, I was going to say you're so isolated, but, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. It's not exactly an original thought that I'm having. Um, but I'll definitely look out for that. That sounds great. It, um, it is. It's just, it's just so good. It's got all that sort of locked room mystery mm-hmm. that you know, a base where there are bodies, what's happened, etc. You know, all of, all of that good stuff. Um, but it also manages to be an intensely personal and psychological book because the protagonist has got secrets of her own. Um, you know, typical essay bonds. There's always like a human layer to it, which mm-hmm. is just as complex and interesting as the cosmic layer. Well, that sounds awesome. I'll um I'll check it out. Yeah. Um. And 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 the last question, Ali. Um. Mm-hmm. You know, what truly scares you i may be dropping this question soon so you could be one of the final people to answer it what truly scares you plane crashes very valid yeah absolutely it's not an irrational fear i refuse to say it's an irrational fear because plane crashes do happen so um i i just i don't know what it is there's i'm fine once the plane is in the air cruising Mm -hmm. I'm fine once the plane is descending and starting to land, but that point at takeoff where you're going so fast and everything's shaking and everything's at a slightly weird angle and everything seems a bit, you know, a bit hallucinogenic. Every time I am 100% certain that this is the time I die. And I, I can't get over that. It's so strange. Have you ever had an actual bad experience on a plane or anything? No, not really. And when I was at boarding school, I was um, very heavily involved in my school's RAF cadets. So I used to fly light aircraft. Oh, wow. So I don't quite know where this conviction has crept in that I'm going to die horribly in a plane crash. But it makes it quite difficult to watch stuff like Yellow Jackets, for example. 
which I love. That's been like my show of the year. But I've really had to not watch the actual plane crash e bits. Everything that happens afterwards, you know, the cannibalism, the leg getting nearly peeled off, you know, that's fine. Fine. Brilliant. But just don't show me the plane crash itself. Are you looking forward to Society of the Snow? Oh, my God, so much. I'm really looking forward to that. I will watch it and it will make me incredibly nervous about mm-hmm. flying again. But um, the Uruguayan flight disaster is has been one of my sort of top fixations all my life. So I can't not watch it. You and my wife, she's obsessed by it. So oh, my, my, great minds. My wife, as I think I don't, I don't know if I've said this on the on the show, but she's basically in the last few years quit her job in in finance, where she was quite well paid to go and retrain as an aeronautical engineer. So it's her and a Fabulous. load of like eighteen year olds learning how aeroplanes work, um, and she's obsessed by it, and and it's actually making her less frightened of flying and she's passing it on to me and making me less frightened of flying but she used to be terrified and she's just as obsessed with the the miracle of the andes is it or something that it's called yeah um and i remember on our second date you spent like 90 minutes intensely telling me about her favorite black box recovery recordings oh that sounds like a great first date to, to a man who's frightened, who, who at the time was frightened of flying. I mean, it's, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Come, on, come, on, come on, Neil, because I know that you basically would have turned around and told her all about the Dyatlov Pass for at least as long, if not longer. I have since. I didn't at the time. I had some decorum. <laughs> but yeah, oh, restraint. No. Wow. Yeah, indeed. But no, airplane crashes. I mean, at some point, are we going to see an airplane crash in one of your books? You, you need reasons to get men in the middle of nowhere so they can eat each other. Well, that seems a good mechanism. I mean, possibly. The airplane crash that I'm very fascinated by, but also very terrified of, and sort of it really occupies that looking between your fingers um, sort of place in my psyche, is the um, crash of the sightseeing plane into Mount Erebus in Antarctica, um, because that that's just horrible. Just... It was an Air New Zealand flight. They were all out for sightseeing in Antarctica. It was just meant to be doing a loop and over Antarctica and looking at things. And things went very, very badly wrong. There's a particular phenomenon where the the colour of the sky and the colour of the snow and the colour of everything in Antarctica plays tricks on you. And they basically flew into the side of a mountain. Oh, wow. And that is absolute nightmare fuel to me because you've got the twin elements of plane crashes and then the immediate aftermath in this most unforgiving place on the planet. So I think eventually I would like to write something about that, Neil. Yeah, just that that with ghosts. Maybe, well, maybe with a secret Nazi base. Oh. Or maybe with aliens. Or, oh. you know... You know me, I always have to add in one thing slightly too much. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a toss up as to what that slightly too much thing will be. I mean, it sounds amazing and I look forward to it. It has to happen now. Good. But for listeners who've listened this far, definitely read Where the Dead Wait. I think this has been a difficult conversation because it's, a, as I say, it's a very, very complex, layered, sophisticated mm-hmm. book. And I may have not done the greatest justice in making it understandable um it's de- it's dense like a fruitcake <laughs> perfect it is yeah um, but not as nourishing um but yeah 
have a have a read of it for sure. It's out everywhere now, and and I really think that it's a book that's worth your time and energy and nausea. Ali Wilkes, thank you for talking scared. Thank you, Neil. Have I ever expressed my relative comfort with cannibalism on the show before? <laughs> it sounds like the kind of thing I would have said out loud by now. Yeah, cancelled for cannibalism. It was always going to be my eventual fate, wasn't it? Um, let's not dwell too much on all of that. Just be aware that if ever we're on a plane together and it crashes, I will be sizing you up for lunch before we even hit the ground. Uh, right, this book is great. Really, really good. I hope lots of you buy it or have bought it because it's the perfect book to disappear into over a long, cold weekend, which we're having plenty of at the moment. However, I do feel the need to warn you that it's no easy read. You won't rip through this in a day unless you read at the pace of Ali Wilkes herself. Because honestly, check out her running list of books read on Twitter. Do you have any idea how much easier my life would be if I could read that fast. Um, but for the rest of us mere mortals, Where the Dead Weight is a book to be savoured, no pun intended, to be chewed over. Still, really, no pun intended. And to be digested slow. Oh, I'm just fucking about now. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's a dense, absurdly intelligent piece of fiction. There were so many points when I thought I'd missed something or that the book was getting away from me and then a dozen pages later Ali brings all the threads together and I'd go ah it's a novel of hint and illusion and there are some stories on the periphery that I just want to know more about like those poor whalers in the rowboats for example. What dark god did they really turn to in the hour of need? Yeah enjoy this one but do not expect an easy ride. It's a book that will nourish you. Um, oh, and I mentioned the USS Indianapolis in passing, didn't I? It's one of it's kind of like an obsession of mine. That's the battleship that went down in 1945, the one that inspired Quint's monologue in Jaws. Um, I hinted at it, but that event had a whole lot more horror than just the worst shark attacks in human history. There was murder, cannibalism, even worse things. It's a truly horrendous story. But we like that kind of thing, don't we? And if you want to know more, I'd recommend the book Indianapolis by Sarah Vladik and Lynn Vincent. It's non-fiction, it's detailed, gripping and graphic. Um, yeah. And speaking of graphic, um, I'm hoping that next week's episode will feature one of the most graphic stories ever written. Ever. <laughs> it's famous for it. However, I haven't recorded that episode yet so don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Let's just say that unless something goes wrong, you're going to want to tune in next week. We really need to update our audio language, don't we? Does anyone tune into anything anymore? Do we stream in? I don't know, that sounds awful. I'm a child of the analogue age. Tune in. Download a podcast. <laughs> oh, and to reiterate, if you want more stuff, just sign up for the Patreon, because... Recent bonus stuff includes an entirely exclusive interview with Lauren Bukes and a lengthy preview of what's coming up on Talking Scared in 2024. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Another pun. <laughs> Otherwise, for the rest of this week, put the heating on 
navigate by the stars, and eat your vegetables, not each other. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.